Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Helen O'Loy by Lester Del Rey. This was first published in Astounding, December 1938. I think I first read it in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Um, it stuck with me. I've read it probably a couple of times over the years in between. And uh, this story is appreciated and also deprecated. Um, I think people are deprecating it because they think it's sexist. And I kind of understand why they think that. I think there are reasons to deprecate it because of <laughs> what kind of a writer uh, Lester Del Rey was. Kind of sloppy. Um, but I also, uh, every time I read it, like I read it three times. And I keep thinking about how good it is <laughs> rather than how bad it is. Um, I'm sure you're very familiar with this story. I am. Um, I read it as a child. I had one reaction to it. I read it as a young adult and had a different reaction to it, or I should say a more complicated reaction to it. I read it and taught it um, sometime in my 30s. And I've read it a couple of times since because I knew we were going to be discussing it. It's a story that, in its barest outline, has stuck in my head uh, quite uh, un unmovably, immovably. On the other hand, uh, when I just read it again a couple of times uh, last week and then again uh, today before we connected uh, I continue to be surprised and impressed by how much is in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think this is not sloppy writing. I think it is perhaps inspired writing. That is to say, I don't mean inspired as an honorific. I have a feeling that this was a, a story that Del Rey just had come mainly out of his fingertips. Just, mm -hmm. just, it came out because there's so many parts of it that had he planned them, you'd go, whoa, that's really cool. Um, but I don't get the impression that he did. I agree. They're just, they're there. You know, a, a lot of writers pick up a zeitgeist kind of thing or something from their childhoods. In the case of Del Rey, what we have is the story about what looks to be an ideal marriage and the loss of an ideal marriage who was I th married, I think, four times. Mm -hmm. um, and the marriage that lasted was to a woman who was uh, very, very far from the physical ideal that is uh, given us for Helen O'Loy. Uh, so uh, I can't help but wonder if the story was not, in some sense, um, compensatory for Del Rey. Uh, the, the the story, just to remind uh, you and me together, um, the story is told from the standpoint of a fellow, Phil, who is uh, best friends with another fellow, Dave. 
Uh, we're set in some future when robots can be made to order and can do all sorts of things, but they can't really do emotions. Uh, Dave runs a small robot repair shop. Uh, Phil is an endocrinologist. And the way the story tells it, or the way Phil tells it, it's possible to understand the chemical roots of emotions by looking at the endocrine system, different hormones and so on. Uh, if you were to set up a circuit that heterodynes, that's a very widely used term from electrical engineering, widely used in the 30s and 40s in science fiction. Basically, it means taking a signal, adding it to a carrier, subtracting the carrier, doing that again and again and again until all you're left with is the signal. It's a way of amplifying a weak signal. You have a carrier signal built into the, into the radio. Um, so it's a way of taking a small input and making it the dominant one. So that's uh, uh, how old-fashioned radios worked. What's being posited here is that Phil and Dave teach each other they, they, they hit it off. They meet as adults. They, they buy a house together or rent a house. I guess they buy a house together. And uh, each pursues his own profession, but they exchange knowledge until Phil knows a lot about robots and Dave knows a lot about the endocrine system. And Dave manages to come up with heteromones heterodyned hormone systems that can be little objects that are plugged into a robot. So they save up all their money and order a robot that is going to be really quite a, an advanced model, more than they could probably afford, but they're going to then modify it, her, um, so that it has human emotions. The reason is that they had begun by having Lena, a servant robot, um, that just did housekeeping and such. Now, the, the charge that uh, the story is sexist uh, hinges on things like the Lena making mistakes in cooking and not being able to fix them. And when she's told that they should fix them, um, she does nothing. And so they dismantle her and therefore have to eat out for a week as if a man couldn't cook a meal. It's such a, a gender-segregated uh, world they live in. Um, and indeed, the, car, the, the robot that they buy um, is described as being incredibly beautiful. They get a female robot to replace Lena in honor of Lena, we're told. It's also explicit that although Dillard, the company, factors these expensive robots, has made it so that this robot could do anything. Dave clearly does not want to use her as a sex object. All right, she's just a robot. He remembers she's just a robot. But they put the heteromones in her, and two things happen sort of simultaneously. Phil gets called away by old Mrs. Van Slyter or Schuyler or something, uh, a stereotype old rich lady's name, to help do some counter-hormonal programming on her son, who has made the terrible mistake of falling in love with a servant girl. Um, at one point in the story, we're told, you know, it would have been a lot simpler if 
this old lady had just done what normal people would do and buy a robot servant. But no, she went and had a human servant and Archie, clearly a boy named Archibald, um, has fallen in love with her. It takes three weeks to counter-program her and him and the girl. Uh, what happens is that uh, he makes a whole lot of money, but in that three weeks, while Phil is away, um, Dave uh, turns on the TV so that it will occupy Helen's mind. Um, but before he gets back to her, the, cha- the, the story, a travelogue, ends, and up comes a romance, and then another romance. And when that ends, she goes through Phil's books. Phil, it turns out, has what he calls a library full of books reflecting a rather juvenile taste in literature, mm-hmm. by which he means romances. But by the time Dave comes home from work, she is in love. And that's when he goes crazy. You know, she's a machine. I'm not going to, you know. And so eventually he leaves. But he comes back because he realizes uh, he's been at his, the, the fruit ranch that his parents had left him um, uh, miles and miles and miles away um, in another town far away, that he really loves her. And he comes back um, and takes her away with him to become a fruit rancher late in life with her. And she just lets, they just let the world around them know that she's human. They don't let on that she's a robot. Phil remains their friend and visits the ranch once or twice a week sometimes. And as Helen needs to age so that she doesn't look wrong as Dave's wife, um, Dave and Phil, sorry, Phil alone adds lines to her face and grays her hair and so on. Eventually, he gets the letter from, from Helen that says that, as they had expected, Dave died of heart trouble. And she and he had both agreed that she wanted to be buried with him. Would Phil do this last thing for her, for them? Acid burns a robot body as strongly as a human's. Will he make sure that she is buried with him and no one know that she was, in fact, a robot? She knows how much he cared, Phil, for Dave, and what your feelings were about me. And she signs it, love, Helen. In the very last paragraph, Phil acknowledges that he did what she requested And he is an old man now and should have married. But after all, it can be read as deeply romantic, requited love and unrequited love, unrequited at first by Dave and unrequited by Helen for that love that Phil feels. It can be read as a stereotypical questioning of the nature of robots. It raises all kinds of philosophical questions. What does make us human? Is it merely our mechanical parts? I think that it is so rich and so not clear. Mm. I thought it was clear when I was a boy. It's so not clear what love means. It's so not clear whether love is um, acquisitive or self-sacrificing. It's so not clear 
what the relationship should be between men and women. It's so not clear what constitutes love um, that I think the story, which looks simple, in fact is haunting. I think it's really, it, it deserves its, its position as a classic. Mm. That's funny you say it's haunting. There's a line that's sort of funny. Uh, uh, Dave comes home. Uh, Phil comes home from treating the, uh, oh, it's Mrs. Van Style, Van Styler, right? Uh, her son, who's fallen in love with a human servant girl. Um, and uh, he finds Dave is down in the basement uh, having drunk through a lot of uh, apple schnapps or something like that. And he says, oh, he was squirting soda into a large glass of apple brandy. And then he says, um, uh, join me? It seemed like a good idea. The roaring blast of the ion rocket overhead was the only familiar thing left in the house. From the look in around Dave's eyes, it wasn't the first bottle he'd emptied while I was gone. And there was more left. He dug out a new bottle for his own drink. Of course, it's none of my business, Dave. But that stuff won't steady your nerves any. What's gotten into you? And Helen, been seeing ghosts? It's funny. <laughs> you say he's haunted. He is haunted. Um, what's interesting is uh, we don't know for a while why Dave is acting the way he is. Um, and then when we learn, he was in denial. And I, I keep thinking about, like, maybe the first time I read it, I, I didn't see the parallel stories that are going on. Phil is in love with Helen as well. They both worked on her together. And then three weeks of separation by Phil meant that he wasn't there for her birth. Like her, her real, you know, blossoming into a, an actual person. And that means that he is not the one who had that adoration put all over him. She, he was not the one who was subject to her affection. And it's really interesting because she's programmed, but she's not just programmed by the adrenal glands that they simulate in her robot body, but she's programmed by the books and by the television or the equivalent thereof. And those are the things that make her the way she is. And then I think back to Lena, who, whose name, again, it's very, I think about how hasty I always think Lester Del Rey's writing is. He's always, like, juggling six things and kind of sloppy. And then I, I look at, you know, that name is a classic name, just like Helen's a classic name. Helen's an obviously classic name. But Lena is one who allures. And what happens to her? She's put away. She's forgotten. But she had the exact same sort of situation happen to her when she's cooking. She cooks fried brushes. Um, right. And then when they complain to her, she gets all upset and says, if you weren't always taking me apart, <laughs> I'd be able to get a darn thing done. Um, she knows she's a robot, and so does Helen. Um, it's, it's almost like the education of Lena was what was lacking in and they couldn't love her in the same way. And yet, when they go to order a new body for their 
new experiment. This is very much like uh, computer home brewing in the late 1970s. You know, you order the computer from a, a company, a vendor, and then you assemble it yourself and you program it yourself and you modify it and, you, you know, get it all up and running. And then you've got your own home-built robot or computer. This is uh, a very uh, a very exciting thing for young men to do. They get together, they b- hobby built, right? They hot rod, they get stuff going. And these two guys are living together. Both have an interest in robotics. One does it for a living, and the other programs human human men and women. And I keep thinking back to that rich Mrs. Van Styler who has a problem with her son having his affections for someone of the lower classes. And then we get the ending of this story. You know, that's sort of a minor thing. But the actual Helen, she's worried that the neighbors not know that she was only a robot. So there are multiple levels in this very, it's only like 23 minutes to read. There are multiple levels in this story. It's a love story. It has all sorts of stuff about the role of men and women. And it isn't only male desire. In fact, if you look at it, it's all female desire that drives it. And yet underneath the surface, there's Phil pining away for the Helen, he, you know, he regrets never marrying, but there was no one else like Helen. It's a really good story. It is. It is. Let me just make explicit something I, I think you may have meant to imply. Um, if you look at the, the capitalist uh, theme that runs through this, uh, how these guys live together because neither is making a lot of money, how mm-hmm. Phil is separated from Dave at a crucial time because old Mrs. Van Styler has made him a, an offer he can't refuse $50, financially. $50,000. Um, exactly. Um, what old Mrs. Van Styler wants, speaking of female desire, mm-hmm. is to make sure that her son Archie uh uh-huh. right archibald has a ruler in the name mm-hmm. right? arch um that her son not throw himself away on a girl of the servant class but phil in fact conspires to make it possible for dave and if he had the if he weren't such a good friend it could have been phil himself could spend a lifetime with a robot of the servant class. Mm -hmm. So one of the interesting subtexts here is that robots do not come under the prejudice, the class prejudice, that goes along with capitalism. Rather, they come along with a different kind of prejudice that has to do with humanism. Mm -hmm. And... At the same time that a love for Helen, which we may feel if we identify with Phil's yearning, but at the same time that a love for Helen may expand our willingness to accept people regardless of their incomes, it asks us whether or not we should also be willing to accept as people things. And, and that's raised as a legitimate question, because Phil is repulsed by the, uh, excuse me, 
Dave is repulsed by the idea of actually copulating with mm-hmm. uh, with Helen, at least at first. Um, I, it's it's good that you you point out what some of these things mean. That's these words come right out of Del Rey. Um, he says. Um, you try it. I had the idea, but I just tr- tried to get uh, get the Helen to uh, stop crying when she she uh, misses Dave. You try it. I had the idea, but she put up a whale that would wake Homer. Mm-hmm. Now that's not a phrase I've ever heard before, nope, uh, or read before. But I know who Homer is, right? He's the guy who wrote the Iliad, which is the story of a war fought in contention of two men over Helen of Troy. And this is Helen O'Loy, but mm-hmm. there is in fact the possibility of contention, but it never comes up because Phil is a good friend to Dave. Dave is a good friend to Phil. And notice Phil means lover mm-hmm. and Dave means beloved. So, I, I can't help but think that Del Rey, perhaps unwittingly, has laid this stuff in enough to not only raise these important philosophical issues, but make us feel sympathy for someone who was not willing to have to, to love at lower rate. Right? Knowing Helen, I could never have loved someone else because I always would have been loving Helen. And I couldn't love Helen because Helen and Dave were happy. So Mm -hmm. we can feel Phil's fidelity, which is human and is sad, regardless of whether or not we agree with the object of his desire. We certainly have to acknowledge his friendship. This is a story that I think makes us want to believe that there is something wonderful about humans. And if self-sacrifice is part of that, then we wind up thinking that Helen is human. But if she is, what does that last line mean? There never was another Helen O'Loy. Is she more than human? Is she showing us up? Mm. You know, there is a... uh, One of the things that I I call them sloppy. Um, I've seen his sloppiness in other stories. There's something at the beginning, um, another reference that I, I couldn't find any evidence. I thought this is just more of his sloppiness. It, it's the third line or third paragraph. She was beautiful. A dream in spun plastics and metals. Something Keats might've dimly uh, seen dimly when he wrote his sonnet. Well, Keats wrote a lot of sonnets, but none of them are about Helen. So I'm not sure. That's right. But I'm not I sure know what which he's sonnet about. it is. Which one is I it? I do. I think he means Ode on a Grecian Urn. Which is not a sonnet. That's what. That's the one I thought of no, as well. I know. It, it's not a sonnet. I understand that. And to that extent, it's sloppy. But I think he means Ode on a Grecian Urn. Yeah, I and agree. And I'll tell you why. Please. Oh, well, <laughs> well there, there are two aspects of it. The, the, the obvious one is the famous last line. Um, beauty is truth and truth beauty. That is all you know in life and all you need to know. Right? Then that's, that's Phil's life. The second part of it, it, the second reason I think it's owed on a Grecian urn is, as you'll remember, that poem is 
one in which the, the voice of the speaker, the poet, perhaps, is contemplating a Grecian urn, is contemplating its perfection of form, is looking at the pictures that are mm. made on the urn and sees a town emptied of its people, as he says. And then he goes beyond that. And he thinks of what kind of a town it must have been. He thinks of the things that are not seen there, but must have happened. Right? Sweet melodies is there sweet melodies, but those unheard are sweeter still. Mm-hmm. He imagines that speaker. What would be the most gorgeous scene? And the scene he imagines is one of a maid and a and a young man forever seeking each other and forever not connecting. That's Phil's relationship to Helen. This is a Grecian urn. It's him thinking about what would happen if only they could get together. So yes, it's not a sonnet. It's sloppy in that way, but it fits so perfectly mm-hmm. in theme, in action, and in in its famous its actual famous wording. But that's not all. Uh, notice where where Dave goes uh, for at first to get mm-hmm. away, and then ultimately to bring bring Helen with him. He goes to a place bequeathed to him by his parents, whom we never see. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it is a fruit ranch. It's Edenic. Mm-hmm. Right? And when he's trying to forget at first, he's, eat, he's drinking apple brandy. Right. Now, I know that the Hebrew is mistranslated as apple. Nonetheless, that's the standard translation of sure. the general word in Hebrew, fruit, as, as apple. So Del Rey is, is resonating with these great mythic questions, you know, what will you do for love of a woman? How can you live without sin with a woman? Only by not having children, only by not letting the world know what you do. And, and it's, it's, it's a story that, yes, yes, yes. I mean, old Mrs. Van Styler, oh, what an egregious stereotype. Um, and yet... And yet they exist. These uh, are based on things. It's really interesting to see the the world outside of their little nest, right? There's two men. They he he says you loved him like a brother in the letter, right? Um, yeah. Their relationship is so tight before you know Helen comes into existence that they are either lovers or brothers, right? They are so close, and when uh, their servant, who they both work on, Lena. Um, you know, has been taken apart and put back together many, many times. They pool their resources and, you know, go into Hawk and end up buying a new project, which they create together. And she says, you are my godfather, which is not the relationship he wants to have with her eventually, right? (laughs) And that is also probably part of the reason why Dave is rejecting her, too. He is her father in a certain sense. He knows that she is what she's made out of. He made her. There's a problem there. But it's the female desire, or at least the robotic version of a female desire, that switches everybody around and has them doing flips and 
and and just resonating again with like they live at a rocket outside a rocket field because it's the cheap place to live but what are they interested in when the twins that they're dating uh you know are not interested in what they're interested they want to watch the venus rocket well they uh, <laughs> meanwhile the twins who are one started dating and the other started dating the sister they would have ended up marrying we're told but what what really puts them off is that they want to watch a male movie star uh, in the latest TV show or whatever it is, and they want to watch the new Venus rocket. So there's like a, a massive tension between female desire and male desire, and in the end, female desire wins. And that's calling it a sexist story is kind of silly if you if you're only seeing it from the one side because. This is super rich, and I, I just I think I'm I could have missed that if I wasn't paying as close attention as I am when I, I went through it again for us today. Indeed, it's interesting that that they are twins, and that Dave and Phil are considered part of the same family. Mm-hmm. At one point, one says to the other, "You're the engineer in the family," or "You're the doctor." Right. I forget exactly. which. Right, um, and they're dating twins, which does seem you know. Wait a minute, how can we? Because they're never differentiated. We're never right. given different names for them. They're just twins. And they each do the one same marriage. job. Right? Exactly. One does, and why one does service would... on robots. One does service on humans. Exactly. And why don't they marry the twins? Because we're told not just that particular specific, but in general, because they were stubborn. So mm-hmm. what's the advantage of robots? Well, you can just turn them off. They can't be stubborn. And yet... The robot that they actually wind up falling in love with is the one who is stubborn. Helen will not give up her love. She wails and wails. She will not give up her love. And it turns out that what looks like it's stubbornness in the twins is steadfastness in Helen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's extraordinary that the story gives us the chance to look at the, the, the ups and the downs of the very same thing. Uh, life is a matter of of how you perceive it in many regards and the story i think makes us understand that there was never another helen o'loy i think given what the dillard company can produce mm-hmm. and the knowledge of endocrine systems that is clearly extant there there were probably lots of helen o'loys mm-hmm. but but not for phil and that is the part that is both irrational and pitiable and admirable it's why a story that's easily dismissed is one about which there's always more to say thanks very much for listening and remember you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.